0: Dennis Kinlaw was a professor of Old Testament history, theology, and languages. He had the ability to make the Word of God come alive, and we believe wholeheartedly in the power of God's Word to change lives through the Holy Spirit. We hope this message will quicken your interest in God's redemptive story. When a person is as old as I am, he can look back and recognize many surprises that have come across his lifetime. For me, though there have been many, I do not think there has been any that has been quite as intriguing to me as what this conference represents. I speak, as you recognize, of the remarkable influence of the group of English writers that we think of when we hear the names of Chesterton, Lewis, Sayers, Williams, and others that we associate with them. The surprise for me, now a delight, is the power that was theirs to grasp the imagination of ordinary folks like myself and turn profound theology from esotericism and irrelevance to something exciting and deeply satisfying. And not just theology, but old theology, that which is associated with the ancient creeds and with names like Paul and John and Moses and Abraham. Yet not one of these writers, not one was really what those in the theological profession would call a theologian. Writers of detective stories, popular biographies, children's literature, or novels that just don't seem to fit the genre, what Thomas Howard calls metaphysical thrillers, yes, but theologians, not a, a not a professional in the lot. For many of us though, when we discovered them, It was as if we had found in their writings something for which we had been waiting. For many of us, something we knew not what, though we may not have realized we were waiting for it, when we read it, we found ourselves saying, this is it, it makes sense, it fits. For some, these authors gave a first introduction to the historic Christian faith. And I've met many persons across the years of my ministry who, in reading Lewis particularly, but also Sayers and Chesterton, came to a personal faith through their writings. And usually it happened while they were students. It meant, if you will let me use good evangelical language, it meant for them salvation. It was for many a confrontation with the person of Jesus that led to a personal attachment and joyous surrender to the God who came to us as the Son of Mary and was defined for us in Scripture and the classical early creeds. For others of an evangelical stripe, their writings brought enlightenment, an explosion of understanding. These captured our imagination so that truths that had seemed pat and one-dimensional suddenly were fecund with life. And a tradition that, as we had understood it, was both narrow and short, took on dimensions that were universal in intent and as extensive as time itself. Note Tom Howard's acknowledgment in the novels of Charles Williams. Howard says, One always has debts to pay, and I pay the following eagerly and gladly, since they are debts of plain gratitude. Mary Ruth Howes sent me my first Charles Williams book in 1959 when I was at Fort Benning, Georgia. It was The Place of the Lion. And I sat in my office transfixed. I was like the Ethiopian whom St. Philip found reading Isaiah in his chariot. I'm not sure I understood what I was reading, but I was fascinated and moved. As it happens, that reading formed the start of a course of thinking that has shaped my imagination or Eugene Peterson's tribute on the cover of the Regent College publishing edition of The Descent of the Dove. Peterson says, When I started reading Williams' The Descent of the Dove, I was a sectarian related only to a small coterie of people who lived and thought and prayed like me. When I finished, I was in a congregation... Centuries deep and continents wide. I started with a spirituality that was almost totally subjective. I found myself in something large, creational and incarnational. I'm not sure this is what Williams intended, but it is what happened. Unintended consequences are common in spirituality. I do not want to suggest that such effects always came easily. They certainly did not for me. It was back in the 1950s. I was a young pastor in my early 30s. I first met Charles Williams. Somehow I had acquired a copy of The Descent of the Dove. His own, highly personal, and as you probably know, idiosyncratic history of the Christian Church. I sat in my study and began to read. By the time I had finished the first 15 pages, I was finding William so offensive to my tastes that apart from a certain superstition about books, I would have thrown it immediately into the wastebasket. But rather... I placed it on a shelf in my library, intending to dispose of it later. Sometime afterwards, I pulled it down and took a second look, and I found myself entranced. The impact of the second reading was clearly, as I look back now, far greater than I at the time realized. When I go back and reread, the descent of the dove now, I find words, phrases, concepts that speak to me of biblical principles and classical theological truths that I had never really recognized in either Scripture or the church fathers before my encounter with Williams. Those principles and truths now lie at the very heart of all that I hold sacred. The idea of the web. I used that for years in trying to explain interpersonal relationships and thought I'd thought it up (laughs) because I'd forgotten that it was in Williams that I had encountered it. The web, that, that individual person's never come alone but always in clusters. The concepts of exchange, substitution, and co-inherence I now see as intellectual tools that have enabled me to grasp a bit of what the Scriptures mean when they say that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. When they speak, of the glorious mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When the Church Fathers speak of perichoresis, or when Richard of St. Victor, William Urey, or Tom Torrance differentiate existence from existence. Many times I have questioned the secret of the appeal and the power in the thinking of these writers. Over the years, a conclusion has slowly developed in my own mind as to what they gave to me that made such a difference. I think it was a fuller understanding of the biblical doctrine of creation, a vision of its comprehensive significance that had never been mine before. I had seen the doctrine as primarily a fact, one for which I should contend, but not as a key to understanding the gospel, the world, or myself. The reality is that there was something about the world that for me was quite suspect. When William spoke of the sacred and glorious flesh, I winced. The word flesh did not speak to me of either the sacred or the glorious. The only definition with which I was comfortable associated with the carnal, not the incarnation. The wedding of sin with human flesh was close and pervasive enough for me that the two were not easily separated. With Williams, the possibility of salvation from sin and the sanctification of the flesh through the atoning work of Christ suddenly became thinkable for me. With that thought, the incredible miracle that took place in the womb of the virgin began to strike me in a very different way. Now it was not what took place in the body of Mary that challenged me, It was what took place in the very nature of the eternal, transcendent God that shocked me. That the one who had created all things simply by the word of his mouth, that he who is without body and parts, that he who spoke a creation into existence, a creation that is absolutely separate from himself, which has nothing, nor ever can have anything that is divine about it, that he has indeed decided to cross the uncrossable chasm between creator and creature, between eternity and time, between infinity and the finite, between God and man, and not only to wed himself to his creation in Jesus, but to wed himself to his creation in the physical body of Jesus forever and to come to us not in a man, but as a man. These thoughts began to explode within me with a reality and a power that produced a quality of wonder and worship that I had never known before but still now seemed to be but a pitiful response to such a glory. Suddenly I found my world, even with its flesh, no longer one to be escaped, but one to be embraced and redeemed, one that would, in the incarnate and resurrected Christ, ultimately be restored to realize that the actualization of this redemption began in Mary's womb suddenly brought into sharp focus the unique importance of each of the individual doctrines of Trinity, Incarnation, Cross, Resurrection, and Ascension. Yet at the same time, I knew in a new way that they were a wondrous whole. With this came an impressive consciousness of the primacy of the good. If the creation came from God and he is good, then all that came from his hand must have his character about it. That, of course, meant that evil is a secondary reality, an intrusion, not originally there, not an inherent part of the created order. My evangelical background made me fully aware of that early conclusion found in Genesis 6-5 about a world which had fallen. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. But now... That text became secondary to an earlier determination, God's own conclusion about his creation. It is recorded in Genesis 1.26, after he had created man. God saw all that he had made, and it was good, very good. So The original character of all things, was a reflection of the character of the one who gave it its existence. It was, in essence, good. This made it possible for me then to understand Williams when he spoke of the two ways, the way of negation and the way of affirmation. I'd had little difficulty in understanding what Williams called the way of negation. That philosophy that says that the world of which we are a part can become an end in itself and distract us from devotion to the God from which it all came. It thus should be fled. I understood Albert Orsburn, the great Salvation Army general, poet of the army, who wrote, Spirit of eternal love, guide me or I blindly row. Set my heart on things above, draw me after thee. Earthly things are paltry shows, phantom charms. They come and go. Give me constantly to know fellowship with thee. But the thought that earthly things that are phantom charms and paltry shows at a deeper level can carry within themselves some reflection some imaging of their origin in the Holy, the Eternal, and the Good One, that came with startling obviousness. Suddenly, Dante made some sense for me. An eight-year-old Beatrice could in her femininity contain within herself for a nine-year-old boy, an intimation of something beyond them both. The human creature, made in the image of God and made for God, never can find within itself the ultimate fulfillment for which the human spirit yearns. Our origin is not in ourselves, nor is our fulfillment. We, by definition, are... From and unto entities. We are from and unto entities. And the word that speaks best of the essential demands of this nature is love. A life in love like that found in the triune being of God is the relationship for which we were made. Now Thomas Torrance's distinction between existence and existence between being in itself and being from and in and to another became thinkable for me. I found myself singing the old hymn, This is My Father's World, but it was no longer a children's hymn for me. It was a profound affirmation of what was beginning to be a maturer faith and a firmer hope. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. My world was different. I decided that Chesterton might be right, that holy things can have a habitation, and that divinity need not disdain the limits of time and space. The world now had about it a double entendre character. There were overtones to be heard if one could acknowledge the possibility that they might be there and believe enough to listen for them. If one hears them, he or she will know that they are in themselves a demand for a beyond. Better, they are not just demand, they are promise. Promises, or stratagems, or traps. I suddenly remembered Lewis's comment on his reading of Chesterton. In reading Chesterton as in reading MacDonald, I did not know what I was letting myself in for. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. Bibles laid open, millions of surprises, as Herbert says, fine nets and stratagems. God is, Louis so said, if I may say it, very unscrupulous. Obviously this means a new view of the nature of God. He is not a God that prizes his distance and his difference. He does not want to be unknown. He is a God that wants to be known and to know. And he has left his fingerprints everywhere to help us. Now I understood Coleridge when he spoke of symbols, or as Williams would say, images, as having three characteristics. First, the image The symbol must exist in itself. It is not imaginary. It is, as William says, sight and not invention. When he speaks of imagination here, we must be careful to understand that we are not speaking of fabrication. Secondly, the symbol must derive from something greater than itself. It is not self-explanatory. It demands the beyond. Real in itself, the image points to a reality beyond. Thirdly, it mysteriously represents in itself that greatness from which it derives its image character. The double entendre. The overtone is actually there whether detected or not. An atheist if he cherishes his unbelief, does need to be careful. Suddenly for me, the material world seemed to have something of a sacramental character about it. It all had within itself the potential to point beyond itself to its maker. So God the Son could use references to water, bread, blood, flesh, doors, vines, branches, fruit, paths, sheepfolds, and shepherds, metaphorically. He could use human relationships like birth, marriage, family, friendship, and human experiences like those of light and darkness, freedom and bondage, life and death to communicate the human need of himself how he longed to relate to his creatures, and what the nature of that relationship could be. The world was not alien to his desire to communicate his love. Was this all just accidental? Or was it the result of a divine purpose that planned the world so that none need miss what it was all about? Over the years, I've come to feel that God is the world's great, best, greatest third-grade teacher, the absolute master of the object lesson. When I first read The Descent of the Dove, I noticed in William's preface a maxim that I later found again and again in his writings. It tantalized me, but for me, it was pure enigma. Williams said, though, that the maxim summarized the history of the Christian Church. Note his comment in that preface. A motto which might have been set on the title page of his history of the Church, but has been less ostentatiously put here instead, is a phrase which I once supposed to come from Augustine, but I am informed by experts that it is not so and otherwise I am ignorant of its source. The phrase is, This also is thou, neither is this thou. As a maxim for living, it is invaluable, and it, or its reversal, summarizes the history of the Christian church. As the years have passed, What began as an enigma for me has slowly been transformed into a perspective that the creation, myself included, which comes from the hands of a personal God who is love itself, should have a double entendre character to it, does not seem so strange or unfitting anymore. If red roses and candy can be more than candy and red roses in a special human relationship, why should not other things be more than themselves in our relationship with God who is love? If the psalmist could find the glory of God declared in the heavens, why should I not find his stratagems of love in his earthly handiwork? If this story is true, can the ordinary ever be simply ordinary again? Without this story, all things are ordinary. Within the context of this story, everything becomes different. It is the story that makes it so. Lewis insisted that exposure to such thinking could be dangerous for the atheist who was eager to protect his unbelief. It can also be quite a problem for those of us who have been trained in historical biblical criticism. If an event of liberation of a slave people in Egypt can be an image of a greater redemption, and if bread and wine can speak of more, than bread and wine. Can an event in the life of a biblical person, or perhaps a non-biblical person, carry overtones that come from the larger story that could not be there if the event were not a part of that larger story? My habit of spending some time every day in reading the biblical text had me reading in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of John. As you perhaps remember, it is the story of the arrest of Jesus and his appearances before the chief priest and before Pilate. As I read that day, I was impressed by the amount of space given to the arrest and the plethora of detail contained in the account as you find it in the Gospel of John. Most of the stories from the Gospel of John are given with relatively little local color, not so with Jesus' arrest. If we put the four accounts as recorded in the four Gospels together, we know many details. Where it took place, what time of day, which day of the week, who was there, the personal names of at least 14 of those present, the nature of the contingent of soldiers sent to arrest him, a cohort which was normally either 200 or 600 men, always entranced me that they thought they needed 200 men to arrest an itinerant preacher. Another thing which I didn't put in here was, I was fascinated to read in John that they came with with lanterns and torches and staves. And for the first time I caught the lanterns and torches come to find the light of the world. Don't tell me John didn't intend that when he cited it. Or the fact of the presence of the temple police, the conversation between Jesus and his adversaries, the mysterious possibilities in the meaning of Jesus' self-identification. When they said, He said to them, "Whom do you seek?" And they said, "We seek Jesus of Nazareth." And He said, "Ego eimi," I am. And the double entendre was there. And you will remember, John says, they stepped back and fell to the ground. The impact of that self-identification on the Roman soldiers and the police. Peter's response to it all. The result of Peter's action, the clipped ear. The person whom he wounded. That it was the ear of the person that Peter struck. But not only the ear, it was the right ear of of the one whom he struck. And the person's name, we know his name, Malchus. We don't know many of the people who were the beneficiaries of Jesus' miracle work in the Gospel of John. But we know the name of this guy, Malchus, and we know what his job was. He uh, would seem to have been the assistant to the chief priest. And we know what his boss's name was, Caiaphas. We know Caiaphas and Jesus' response to the clipping of the ear. But most of these details are given by John, not the synoptics. In the Gospel of John itself, I don't believe, as I said, that there's another story so replete with details. Could there be a reason for this, which I was not perceiving? Suddenly it dawned on me where they took Jesus when they arrested him. You see, they took him to Malchus's ball. The chief priest. With that realization, I suddenly thought I was hearing a conversation. Well, Malchus, how did it go? Malchus responded quietly as he rubbed his ear. Well, we got him. Well, did you have any trouble? Malchus, again rubbing his ear, said, well, yes, just a little. What do you mean, just a little? Sir, you know that big fisherman? Temple intelligence certainly makes this reasonable. The chief priest said, Do you mean Peter? Yes. Well, what about him? Well, sir, he pulled his sword. Well, did he hit anybody? Yes, sir, he hit me. Well, Malchus, you look all right to me. Where did he hit you, sir? He cut off part of this ear. Malchus, your ear looks all right to me. Yes, sir, that's the problem. Do you really think we want to kill this guy? Now, if one takes this event out of the larger story, it is simply the story of an ear, its injury, and its healing, of an event between Peter, Malchus, and Jesus. But when this event is seen in the light of the larger story, It is an act of God in which the second person of the Trinity relates himself to those who are plotting his destruction and it is an act of love. Malchus' ear is more than an ear. It is a metaphor. It is Christ's last love note to the man who's going to see that he's crucified. Carried by the man's own servant. because And I suspect that Malchus was the chief priest, prime representative, his leader in the contingent of temple police. A human ear now becomes a revelation of the very nature of the eternal God. It is an imaging of what Lewis calls the unscrupulosity of God, who in his love would like to trap all of his creatures. Lewis calls this unscrupulous, perhaps so, but it is love, nevertheless. This means that events as well as things can be images or symbols. The story of Malchus's ear certainly fits Coleridge's definition. The event itself, which points beyond itself, and carries within itself something of the nature of the one to whom it points. For some time, I wondered why this group of writers was so enamored with the literary genre of detective stories. Detective stories were never my meat. For me, in my ignorance, this just did not seem to fit the seriousness that was so much a part of their faith. Then I decided that it was simply that they found great fun in identifying events that in isolation meant little, but when they included them in their larger stories, those events became clues in which the resolution of their mysteries lay. That passionate sensitivity to clues and their significance in the larger story gave them a special interest and delight also in seeing that God seems to have delighted and still delights in dropping his loving clues into his mystery story, clues that point to the solution of that mystery of all mysteries, life itself. And since the second person of the Trinity is the Word, he understands the nature of language. He surely then knows the power of metaphor, because what is language? How one word or phrase can speak of one thing while literally it is representative of something else. That means then that it is perfectly permissible to say this is Malchus's ear. When we're simply trying to indicate that some moment, some event, or seemingly accidental happening is an imaging of something beyond itself. Does that mean that for many of us, these writers whom we have remembered in our sessions together are really Malchus's ears given for the edification of us all, or could it be that these hours that we've had together are really exactly that now I'd like to add a personal note that I guess that's personal enough, <laughs> but uh tell you something uh, something else that has where this has made a significant difference in my life. I was a happy Hebrew teacher in a seminary <laughs> across the street, teaching Hebrew and Syriac and Coptic and some other related unimaginative and uninteresting things. And on 26 hours' notice, I suddenly found myself the president of a Christian liberal arts college across the street. Now, I've said there have been a number of surprises in my life. And that was a shock. And I thought, I'd never thought about undergraduate liberal arts education. I'd trained, I'd been a pastor, then i taught in the seminary. So the theological arena was my area. And now I was in a liberal arts college. I must admit that at first I thought it was a distinct step down from me. But I decided that the coach has a right to put anybody in it in his spot he wants. And so I didn't really have much option on that, and so reconciled myself to it. But I began trying to explain to myself the rationality behind a, behind a Christian liberal arts college. And Asbury was particularly of interest to me, because the man who founded Asbury... At 17, was hardly literal, and he was converted. And God called him to become an evangelist. He first became a pastor in the Methodist church, and then an evangelist. He had a wife, like many of us, who had far better credentials than he had. Over a period of time, a conviction began to grow with him that he should found a college in Kentucky, a Christian college. And, uh, of course, when that conviction started with him, he thought, this is absurd, totally absurd. But the conviction wouldn't go away. And it deepened to the extent that he had to have relief. So he finally decided, I will get my wife privately and tell her what's happening and she'll laugh. And when she laughs, I'll be free. So he took her into the bedroom and shut the door and said, You know, I have this strange feeling that I should start a college. And his horror. He looked at him and said, That's a God. And he was stuck. Now, interestingly enough, he heard about William James and went to Harvard and sat through some of the lectures of William James. C. Stanley Hall had just come to Johns Hopkins in what was an initial psychological program and wrote what, William Wundt in Germany, he went and sat through many of C. Stanley Hall's lectures. I love the fact that when God quickens the heart, he quickens the whole man, and that the intellect is not isolated. So he started this college. And I thought, now, it's interesting. It was founded in, in in 1890. In 1890, there were a number of schools being established by evangelicals in this country. But the interesting thing is, the mass of them were Bible schools. Moody founded a Bible institute. What, 1882 was it? Eight years before Asbury. A.B. Simpson founded NIAC Missionary Training Institute. It was a Bible Institute. R.A. Torrey, graduate of Yale, started, was the president of Moody and then founded Bible Institute of Los Angeles. A.J. Gordon, now Gordon College and Gordon Theological Event, it started as a Bible school. And I thought to myself, wonder why it was. The man who was 17 was practically illiterate. And an evangelist did not start a Bible institute. I think it is because of exactly the reasoning here. And somehow or other, as I thought of Williams and that understanding of creation, I suddenly thought, what is the curriculum of a Christian liberal arts college? Why, it's nothing but a structured expression of the doctrine of creation. And I suddenly felt perfectly comfortable building an educational program around required chapels. (laughs) It was not inconsonant with all the rest of what we were doing. And if a person was expected to go to class, he probably ought to expect to include the worship of the Creator whose universe he was studying. And I found myself very comfortable in a liberal arts college instead of a theological institute. Now, I've had a second thought that's come on this, and I'm way over my head now <laughs> because uh, I'm not a theologian and I'm not a scholar, but uh, I've been fascinated with the fact that in the last three or Four decades, there has been this incredible interest in the doctrine of the Trinity in theological circles, which was not there when I came along, because as a Methodist, my world was personalism. Gordon Parker Brown, Edgar Sheffield Brightman, and God was a being who was personal, and the Trinity. Oh, yes, that was in the creeds, but it had nothing to do with personal faith. And then I read Charles Williams. And suddenly I was confronted with the incarnation and his doctrine of co-inherence. That the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Father and the Son are in the Spirit. The Spirit are in the Father and the Son. That Jesus is not all there is of God, but all there is of God is in Jesus. And the Spirit is not all there is of God, but all there is of God is in the Spirit. And Williams was the key to my being able to think such thoughts. With his doctrine of substitution and exchange and co-inherence. And as I began to read the early church fathers, whom I never studied in college or seminary, never had really any indoctrination in in the uh, church history courses that I had. Well, we Protestants, we read about Paul, and then we jumped to Augustine, then we jumped to Aquinas, and then we jumped to Luther and Calvin. And so, a total vacuum in the origins of the faith. And I went back and began to read, and I hit that word, caricaturgy. And as I read, I thought, a man, Charles Williams taught me about that. <laughs> it wasn't Carl Bart, But when I read about it in the theologians, Williams had introduced me. Now let me raise a question with you. Uh, in the theologians that I read, they suggest that the shift toward the emphasis on the Trinity in theological circles began with Bart. Karl Barth, with his emphasis upon uh, the Revelation and the Incarnation, and then Bank, you have to deal with the trend. And that it has been developed further by the theologians since, more richly. But I noticed that Karl Barth published his Romans commentary, what about 1918? But it was 1930 before he really, if I, I think I'm right, before he really began to develop the Trinitarian understanding that you find in the heart of Bach. But G.K. Chesterton came early. And Dorothy Sayers and Lloyds were contemporaries. I wonder, you see, I've read passionately about the Trinity in the last ten years. But it wasn't the theologians that quickened my imagination and my interest. It came out of reading these guys. And you know, I've come to the place where I like that. And I wonder if we don't need to get our boys and girls that are going into Christian ministry, get them indoctrinated in some of this. Because it's a better avenue for the glorious gospel to become thinkable for ordinary people like some of us.